This episode is brought to you by Greg Morris Cards, one of the largest sports card sellers on the planet. Greg sells over 80,000 vintage and modern cards every month, including basketball, football, baseball, hockey, all sports really, and even some non-sports cards too. On top of that, every raw card receives the same hand grading that collectors have put their trust in for over 15 years. What are you waiting for? Head on over to gregmorriscards.com auctions and check it out for yourself. What's up, everyone? This is episode 181 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle, and as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Do you remember that Beckett episode from a couple weeks ago? I know it hasn't been that long, right? But just in case you don't, or maybe you didn't listen to it, the gist of it was that Beckett is a train wreck right now, and the left hand doesn't seem to know what the right hand is doing. Well, we had a chance to hear from the new CEO, um, Kunal, and Jeremy, who's worked there for a while. We got a chance to hear from them firsthand this week on the most recent episode of Let Me Get That Potograph, and it was comical, to say the least. Now, I encourage you to listen to the whole thing on your own time, but at one point, Jeremy addressed the new slab controversy that I talked about, and he said that they were simply just part of the national booth design. He said they were, quote, made by our design team, who are not hobby folks. Which still makes them look horrible. Shouldn't someone be checking off on the company's display for the biggest hobby event of the year? And, you know, they didn't think it would cause confusion. So they mentioned, well, you know, those aren't the hobby people, right? When are the card people at this company going to step in and give some input? Uh, Or do they even exist there anymore? Are there any card people there? Once again... Left hand, right hand. Um, that's all I have to say about that, though. I you know, could go on and on about Beckett, but um, that's not what I'm here to talk about today. They can figure that out on their own. Um, I've got several other things I want to talk about. Now, usually I would talk about mail somewhere around this time, and I will say I went on a bit of a buying streak over the last week or two, including a grail that popped up out of seemingly nowhere, Well, for the time being, you can find that on my YouTube channel. Some of the stuff I bought has arrived. Some of it hasn't. Rest assured, I will talk about a lot of of these cards on the show, just not this show. This episode's going to be long enough as is. Most of the mailbag episodes are, so uh, be on the watch for that in the coming weeks. One thing I will not skip here at the start, however, is this week's installment of Collector Classifieds. Hey, this is Andrew Brick. I'm located in Atlanta, Georgia. My Instagram handle is at DeBrickCards. For the past two years, I've been building the 2020 WNBA Prism Gold Base Set out of 10. I currently have 72 of the 128 I'm missing. I've rarely seen them pop up. So if you have any, uh, the list that I'm missing is listed on my most recent Instagram post. If you could send me a message, would really appreciate that. That's at DeBrickCards, D-A-B-R-Y-K, cards. Uh, really appreciate it. Thanks. 
Okay, so as you just heard, Andrew is looking for the last 20 or so cards he needs for that WNBA Prism Gold set, and that's the 2020 set. And any of you that have chased sets before know it can be tricky because it's not always a matter of paying for the cards. Sometimes it's just finding them. So Andrew's got a list in his profile. I'll make sure that I share that with you this week, and let's see if we can't help him track these down. All right, before I move into today's main segment, I want to take a moment to remind you how you can support this show. As you guys know, there are costs that go into producing a podcast. One of my goals is to always keep the show itself free. As a result, I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics. If you'd like to help support the show in this way, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Click whatever store you need to go to, shop as planned, and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hi, this is Alan Siegel, the designer of the NBA logo. And now you're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Okay, I've got roughly 20 questions for today's mailbag, so I'm going to go ahead and jump right in with the first grouping, which all deal with Panini and Fanatics and the eventual license change. So Hoops Hobby asks, with Fanatics coming into play in the basketball space, what tops brands excite you most if they were to return with team logos? Well, in no particular order, I would say regular Tops, Tops Chrome, Finest, Heritage, and Tops Total. And there are others that I liked, but those are the ones that come to mind first. Maybe even Tops Big Game because they're going to want to do uh, jumbo relics of some sort. Alex Connell Collection asks, what three Panini sets do you hope survive the move over to Fanatics? Uh, That is assuming that Fanatics eventually purchases Panini, which has been a rumor for a while now. Um, I don't want to fuel that necessarily. I don't have any inside info. So I'm just going to answer that question as it was asked. Um, If if they were to purchase them, um, you know, I realize that with both Tops and Panini under the same umbrella, there's going to be some overlap when it comes to sets. They've got to scale back the Chromium stuff. With that being said, though, it's hard to imagine that we lose both Prism and Optic. So I definitely like to see Prism make the jump, provided they scale it back a little bit. I want to see something like 2013 Prism again. Um, There were retail exclusives to both Walmart and Target. There were plenty of parallels, but it hadn't come close to jumping the shark. And granted, it wasn't ultra popular then when it came out, but there's some brand history there now, and I think people would want it. In addition to that, Tops is going to need some sort of a high-end product, and I'm a patch guy, so I'm going to go with Flawless. I, you know, I'd like to see the NTRPAs come along too, just for continuity's sake. But the rest of the product, uh, National Treasures, has been hot garbage. So maybe they could somehow integrate those into Flawless instead. And then if, I guess if I had to pick a third, I'll go with Court Kings, only if it looks like it did around 2013 as well. So that means on-card autos game-dated patches, uh, super short-printed inserts, those kind of things. And then the last licensing question comes from D. Crosscuts, who asks, what is the future of trading cards after Panini loses their licensing? So if they actually lose it and don't get purchased by Fanatics, I think people are going to be quick to judge tops either way. We've seen people cheerlead for tops and upper deck during the entire Panini era as if Those two companies never did anything wrong. Well, if you were around when they produced cards, you know better than that. 
But once everything flips to tops, I think we're going to see a younger era of collector that looks back at Panini with that same sense of nostalgia. Just like a lot of the older collectors now look at Tops and Upper Deck. Now, I think Tops is not the same company it was when they lost basketball back in 2009. I say I think. In fact, I know they're not. They've already paralleled some of the baseball releases to death. They'll likely do the same with basketball. Uh, people will be upset. They'll find out that the grass is not always greener. Now, with that being said, though, I'm still looking forward to a change, even if I'm not 100% optimistic about it, because you guys know I'm just burnt out on Panini right now. Uh, and speaking of Panini, though, I don't think they're going to completely disappear either. You might have noticed that they've been more intentional with their college stuff lately. They have player-worn relics for their college releases, but not for the same players in the NBA stuff, and I think that's intentional. My theory is that they're looking to establish the value in the college stuff relative to the pro stuff that they've um, you know, voluntarily let diminish. And I'm also curious to see if they'll be able to strike a deal with the Players Association that lets them make a pro product without the NBA logos. They've done it with baseball. A lot of people have criticized that stuff. But if done right, I think an unlicensed pro Prism basketball release could still have a moderate level of success. That doesn't mean everyone will love it, uh, but if nothing else, it creates continuity with the last decade of licensed products. And I can tell you firsthand, I would buy unlicensed Pacers gold prisms for my binder. And I think a lot of other people would too. They would buy their star players just because of that continuity of Prism. Okay, Frozen Inferno Collectibles ask. Autograph collecting is one of the world's oldest hobbies. Why do you think it has persisted for thousands of years, and why do you think humans put so much sentimental value on them? I think it's a number of things. For one, there's the element of the hunt. People enjoy hunting and obtaining something, especially if it's an in-person autograph. Last week, you might have seen on my Instagram, uh, I showed off a couple of Allen and Ginter cards that I got signed back in 2017 while I was on my honeymoon. And Mrs. Wax Museum and myself, we knew that we were going to attend a Red Sox-Tigers game at Fenway, so I grabbed my cards of Marlins Man and Buster Olney because I knew the game was going to be on ESPN. So I just had a hunch, you know, maybe I'll see those two guys while I'm there. And we did. We were able to track both of them down, and it added to the whole experience. Now, those signed cards kind of became a trophy of sorts, and I think about that every time I go through my collection and I see them. Um, another aspect of autographs that I think people appreciate is that it provides a connection that they might not otherwise have. For instance, I never met Pete Maravich and I never saw him play because he died when I was like a month old, but I have a Maravich autograph as part of my signed 72 top set. And even though I didn't physically get it signed myself, I feel like it's more of a connection to him uh, than you would get with an unsigned card. It makes me feel, you know, holding that card that he held at one point, uh, it makes me feel more connected to basketball history. And not everyone's like that, but that's kind of how I treat it. So, um, you know, I can't speak for everyone else, but those are a couple reasons why I enjoy autograph collecting. All right, Owen uh, Cardstocks, who you heard on the show last week, he asked, which NBA Hall of Famer has the worst rookie card in your opinion? Let's do 2000 and earlier. I'm not going to focus much on anything from 1990 on mainly because those guys had multiple rookies to choose from. For example, um, I do not like Steve Nash's upper deck rookie where he's on, um, he's at a hockey rink and he's got a hockey stick 
and he's going to hit a basketball with it. I think that's a really dumb card. I understand why they did it. Just to me, I think it's dumb. But he's got like 15 other rookies you can choose from instead. So if you don't like that, so be it. The older guys, though, if their rookie card sucked, you're out of luck because there is only one to choose from to begin with. Um, So I narrowed it down to a couple, but I'm going to pick Bob McAdoo's 73 tops rookie. Um, First off, that is one of the ugliest basketball sets of all time, in my opinion, and probably my least favorite vintage set. And then in addition to the design itself being ugly, they've got him posing in uh, like a hallway or a locker room uh, where you can see the concrete walls in the background. And it's just awful. At least for the other years, like 74, I'm sure it was the same type of shots, but at least they, um, you know, cropped the the person out of it and, and put them on a background. They didn't do that with 73. It's just awful. Okay. So that was the worst looking rookies. Cornerstone Cards then ask, what are the best looking basketball rookie sets from 96 to 99? So a very specific range there. Um, So there are a lot of good ones out there, but I'm going to give you two. So I would say 96, 97 Fleer Ultra, and that could be either the regular base uh, or the Encore base. I think they both look awesome. And then uh, this is one that doesn't get talked about a lot, but I thought 99, 2000 Skybox EX... um, I like those a lot. In fact, I think they look better than the credentials. And spoiler alert, you will hear me talking about those credentials from that year very soon. Um, credentials would be considered a parallel, though. And um, that question didn't deal with it. But the next one does. It came from the corner view. He asked, if you could get rid of one parallel or type of card, what would it be? I've got two. Any type of disco design has got to go. Um, and then anything that has a pink hyper design, that's got to go. It, it do, it's not even an appealing shade of pink. I actually don't mind just the regular optic pinks, especially uh, like 2018 looked awesome, right? But that hyper shade that they use is hideous. Okay, um, if I could expand that list, they only ask for one. If I could expand that list, it would likely include some animal print parallels, Um, Which leads us to our next question. Tough Times Cards ask, what's your favorite prism or mosaic animal print design? Well, I bought a few over the years hoping that I would like them. Um, I had a Tiger Stripe Oladipo, but it just didn't do anything for me. And and probably a snakeskin would have been more appropriate anyway. Um, If I had to choose one, though, I'd probably choose the Peacock Parallel from Mosaic, which I haven't personally owned, but... Um, I have seen several of them in person, and they're very nice. Okay, MJ's Sports Cards asks, can you share a little bit about how you store or organize your collection? Um, I get this question a lot, and I've, I've tried to stumble through this answer many times. It's always evolving. I'm mostly a box guy. I like monster boxes in, in two rows, and I'll put like top-loaded cards, and then I'll have cards in one touches as well in those rows. That can get really bulky and heavy. And um, I'm trying to move some of the chromium stuff to binders and Z folios to be specific. A lot of people ask me the best way to organize stuff. I've never had a good answer. So for right now, this is the best bad idea I've got. Speaking of my collection, Bruegel Cards ask, is your PC an endless endeavor or do you have a hard limit on the size and a strong rotation policy in place? I wish, right? Uh, as of right now, yes, Endless Endeavor is, is a more accurate description. 
I try to cycle things out, but it rarely ever happens. But I will say, though, part of the reason I think is because I try to be selective from the start. Um, I try, even though I do have a lot of cards, I try not to accumulate um, just junk, right? I'm trying, like, let's say if, if I'm ever going to buy another Solomon Hill card, as a Pacers rookie from 2013, it better be like an amazing one. I'm not just going to go out there and, and start stockpiling Solomon Hill stuff just because I don't have it. Uh, I'm going to only try and add some real premium stuff here. All right, um, PC underscore 305, he had a couple of questions. The first one was, what effect would a second national have on the hobby? And that's really hard to tell, but I'll, I'll take a stab at it here. You have to look at the national and figure out what makes it valuable or makes it desirable in the first place. And the big thing about the National is that it only happens once a year. So the moment you split that into two parts, its importance starts to diminish at the same time. Now, I suppose if you really had to have a second one, you could do an East Coast and a West Coast, or maybe an International National. (laughs) That almost seems like a contradiction here. Um, and I'm not even sure if people would want that because I, I know a lot of the international people enjoy coming to the States once a year for that. So the one thing I can tell you, though, if we have a second national, then we can finally call them nationals with an S. All right. The second question then from PC305 was, what steps would you take to start your own trade night? And this is something I've never done. So step number one for me would be to reach out to as many people I could find that have successfully facilitated one, um, I would say talk to them because I, I don't want to give you any uh, any advice that would lead you in the wrong direction. I will say though, I think if you build it, they will come. Just make sure there's plenty of tables, chairs, parking, and air conditioning. Those would be the main things that I would be worried about as an attendee. All right, um, 77 NCAA champs submitted four questions. So I'll touch on each one of those here real quick. Number one, which modern card set that you own is the most condition sensitive and why? Uh, I own a couple of the 2008 red PMGs and those things just shed to pieces. Um, they're awful. They're hideous. I really only own them because of their place in hobby history. Number two, do you climate control your collection? Uh, as of right now, I, I don't. I probably should. I mean, our, our house is um, cooled at a, at a certain level, I guess. But, um, the only thing that gets any sort of special treatment is the stuff in the safe. And, uh, I ordered some silica packs that, uh, you know, I'm supposed to swap out every time they change color. That doesn't always happen. Um, and I even told Mrs. Wax Museum, I, I, I bought some of those to protect our valuable documents. And, uh, she just laughed at me and said, I, I know exactly why you bought those. Uh, number three, if the Pacers relocated to a different city, would you stop collecting them? I guess that depends on how much of the history and the branding they take with them. If it's a situation like the Sonics turning into the Thunder, probably not. Um, I'll still collect the old stuff, but I have a feeling it would be hard to collect the new stuff either way because if they went to a different city, I, I would probably be jaded. I'd be upset. All right, number four. He said, Mexican pizza, is it now a marketing gimmick or a momentary culinary blessing? I'm going to go with marketing gimmick for the time being. Although I I will say, I think the taste is better than a McRib, which is also a marketing gimmick. Um, I've never been a huge Mexican pizza fan, though. I I don't dislike them, but even the last one I had was just a big sloppy mess. And I don't like messy food. So 
I would much rather them bring back something else like the Beefy Fritos Burrito. Okay, before I move into the second batch of questions, I want to remind you that this show is brought to you in part by ComC.com, your home for buying, selling, and flipping all types of trading cards. ComC is currently offering 50% off processing fees for all newly released trading card consignments as part of their Fresh Pulls program. To qualify, cards must be received within 90 days of the hobby release date and submitted using Elite Select or mailbox processing service levels. For more info, you can check them out on social media under the handle at checkoutmycards. Okay, next question comes from Houston, that's Houston with an M, 13. This is a long one here. Considering your very extensive approach and study of the hobby history, and the fact that you have made nearly 200 episodes, and he said, I listened to all of them, how come you have never presented the hobby outside of the USA? Asia, Europe, Australia, etc., either from a collector standpoint or the specific releases sold there, or what type of shows. I think it would be worth it. Uh, First off, I know you've been a loyal listener and you've watched a lot of the YouTube stuff as well, so I want to say I really appreciate that, and hopefully someday we'll meet up at the National. I know we had talked about it around 2020, and everyone knows what happened then in 2020. As far as your question goes, though, the short answer is that You know, I haven't addressed the international aspect much because I don't know much about it. And I tried to address it some when I talked about hobby message board history, and I even posted about it publicly, and and I let people know that, hey, you know, I want to cover this, but I need help. And the first post I made on Blowout um, was November 2nd of 2020. It said, I definitely need to include the international scene. I'm going to need some help on that one, though, if anyone could chime in. And I got a couple responses, but no real info. I bumped it up again on November 8th, so that was six days later, and I said, anyone care to weigh in on the international side of message board history? So I was putting some feelers out there and trying to get some information. I didn't get much. Um, To say that I've never presented it on the show itself, though, is not true. Um, You mentioned Australia there. I pulled up my notes from episode 93 where I chatted with Vamsey. I think we talked about PSA. And one of the first questions I asked him was, what does collecting in Australia look like? And, um, you know, while I'm at it, I I should pull back the curtain a little bit here. I enjoyed that conversation a lot, but the logistics behind it were not easy because he's in Australia. I'm in the United States. There's a 10 hour difference between here to there. And when we chatted, I think he was drinking his morning coffee while I was winding down from a full day of work at my real job. And then that was actually our second Zoom call because I scheduled one prior to that to try and develop a little chemistry ahead of time. I think it's generally a good idea to talk to someone before I have them on. I try to do that for you guys. Um, So I agree with you. It would probably be worth the effort to do something like this for other locations, not just Australia. But um, to do that, I'm going to need a lot of help. So I'm, I'm not ruling it out. It's just something that I probably can't do on my own. All right. Dar's 90s cards ask, what are a couple boxes you'd want to open the most? Well, in my uh, ripping history, I would say I I barely opened any high-end stuff, so I'm kind of tempted to pick something along that route. Although the one time I did, I I was fortunate enough to open an immaculate box because it got stupid cheap. And the whole box took like a minute and a half, so it wasn't much of an experience. 
And I guess if I'm only going to get a handful of cards, it should at least have some levels. So something maybe like 2014, 2015 Eminence, where there's just a lot of important packaging that you're peeling away. You know, maybe something like that would be fun, but it would still be a quick rip. And um, on the flip side, there's some stuff I've ripped that just takes forever, like Panini Complete or Tops Total. As much as I love Tops Total, the boxes take forever. There's usually only one hit, maybe two if you're lucky. So I think an ideal box experience needs to be something in between. It needs to have more than one hit and, and probably more than, you know, 40 or 50 cards. Uh, with that being said, I think I'd really like to open a box of 0405 Tops Finest. I know there were, you know, the, the configuration was interesting. There were multiple mini boxes, and then there was um, a separate pack that had an uncirculated card. Um, I've watched people break that on video, but I never got to do it myself, and it, it always looked like a lot of fun. And I will say, I think something the industry really lacks right now, among other things, are boxes that provide a legitimate experience. And maybe that's why we see so many, you know, wannabe thespian breakers. They feel like they have to provide the experience themselves because the product itself is not doing that. Um, and I'll give you an example. Even though I'm a basketball guy, I used to open a box or two of Allen and Ginter every year because it was an experience. And I also like history stuff. But uh, there's a box topper pack. There's minis in there. There's short prints. There are um, rip cards. I pulled three or four of those over the years. So that, you know, Allen and Ginter is a legitimate experience. So to bring this thing full circle, if I'm going to shell out big bucks to open a product today, I want it to offer some sort of experience. Okay. Hoops, hoops, cards, and more 91 said, I know you've mentioned other podcasts and have brought some hosts on, but what's your definitive podcast playlist? He said it can be non-hobby related too. Uh, here are some that I listen to on a regular basis. There is, of course, Pack to the Future podcast, Sports Card Therapist, The Bounce, uh, The Crossover, The Bill Simmons podcast, and then there are some other shows sprinkled in. I do like a couple wrestling shows here and there, um, but I don't really like the new wrestling stuff as much as I like hearing about the older guys. Um, you know, there are others that I like, but I just changed jobs and I have a shorter commute, so... Um, it's taken up a lot of my podcast time. In addition to that, I've, I've not been able to run as much now that I have this new job, and that was my other time to listen. So I've had to pick and choose as of late. Okay, Hobbyman underscore Hobbyman asks, who are your favorite 10 big men to collect and why? 10 of them. Um, I wouldn't say that I specifically target big man, and I wouldn't say that, you know, I can come up with 10 necessarily, but I'll give you, let, let me do a top five and then maybe I'll merge some together for the, for the rest of them. Um, so number one, Jeff Foster, because he was part of three or four different iterations of the Pacers over the course of a dozen years. Uh, Rick Smits, because I got his autograph when I was a kid and he was one of my favorite Pacers. He was on one of my favorite Pacers teams, I should say, the team that went to the finals. Bill Russell because of his impact on and off the court. Uh, his rival, Wilt Chamberlain, because he almost seems like more of a mythical character to me. He's just larger than life. And then for number five, I'll cheat a little bit here. I'll blend a bunch of Pacers big men together because there's just so much stuff out there for them. You've got Jermaine O'Neal, Roy Hibbert, David West, uh, Miles Turner, and so on and so on. Okay, the penultimate question 
comes from the show's official Northeast correspondent, Steve, a.k.a. Sholey, a.k.a. S. Halley, 2003. He wrote, If you had to do it all over again, what would you do different? And then he said, define it as you please. So that could be starting a podcast, could be my Artest collection. He also mentioned it could be decisions with what to buy or not to buy and so on and so on. And um, I wrote this answer out and thought about it. And, you know, it might seem kind of salty, but it is what it is. And I've thought about it quite a bit. Everything Steve named there, the podcast, the Artest collection, what cards to buy. There are parts of each one of those that I'd tweak if I could go back in time. But one thing that I've thought about quite a bit over the last year, especially, and and I guess this pertains to the podcast and research in general, is all the time and energy I put into researching RPAs. Now, don't get me wrong. No one forced me to do that. I'm not blaming anyone for that. I chose to do that myself, and I started doing it because I wanted to. There was entertainment value in it for me. And then I also, I felt like it was generally helping people out. I I thought it was preserving an important part of hobby history. Um, At some point, though, things changed. Because that RPA buying and collecting sector of the hobby seems to have moved past the collectibles phase. And now these cards are treated more like assets. And and that doesn't mean that there aren't people out there that genuinely collect them. And I know there are because they've they've messaged me, right? Um, But I think it's fair to say that that ratio has definitely flipped over time. And while I've found that my interactions with collector-oriented individuals are, are pleasant, my interactions with a lot of the asset people are downright awful. And there's very rarely when you deal with them any sort of hello. If they do, it usually takes the form of, hey, bud, or hey, boss, Or they'll say, hey, guys, because they still don't know that I'm one person. They think my account is like some group of people. Um, Very few of these people know how to research anything on their own, even when you put the tools right in their hands. And then a lot of the ones that do understand how to use the research, they'll gladly use it to their advantage at card shows, but they won't contribute to it when they see information that's incomplete. Like if they see a copy of an Anthony Davis RPA at a show, and they're using my tracker, they won't tell me. They won't send me a picture and say, hey, here's another copy. You can go ahead and add it. I needed people to be boots on the ground, and they're just not doing that. So in other words, this class of people has taken some of the most important cards in modern hobby history and stripped them of any real collectability. On top of that, they've neglected the communal aspect of this whole thing because they refuse to share any information that, you know, might have and and would benefit the whole. So, you know, all of that is to say, to go back to the original question, if I could go back and do it again, I would probably take the RPA trackers and invest that time and energy into some other collaborative hobby project that would suit the needs of, um, I guess you could say, a more appreciative group of people. Okay, um, last question from Redhead Cards. He asked, uh, what should you do if you have a BBCE wax museum? And this is, of course, in reference to the questionable 8687 Fleer box that was opened at the National. It was, quote, authenticated by Baseball Card Exchange, but the packs inside had some really wonky sequencing relative to what we've seen with all 86 Fleer boxes before. So what would I do if I had one of these wrapped boxes? 
well, I guess I'd send it to Golden since they sold the last one. And then I'd hope that no one ever opens it. And it's that exact same hope that has protected a lot of dishonest people for years in this industry. For example, uh, look at, and maybe you haven't seen it yet, but there was a $12,000 2012 prison box at National that was filled with Austin Powers packs. And the person who swapped all that stuff out probably never imagined anyone would actually open that box. Because who in their right mind would open Prism for that much and eat that much cash? I'll remind you, back in 2012, I thought my $60 box sucked. I can't imagine spending 12 grand on it, uh, and it wasn't reasonable. But, you know, thanks to group breaking, here we are. We've run out of reasonable ideas and people are thirsty for bigger and better boxes and bigger and bigger risks. Um, so like it or not, you better get used to hearing the phrase, we all got duped, because it's likely to happen again. All right, there you have it. As usual, you guys submitted a lot of great questions. Maybe there was something I mentioned in a response today that resonated with you. Feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under the handle at Wax Museum Podcast. I'm also on Twitter under at Wax Museum PC. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site, which is www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. <laughs>